All right, so we have some work to do this morning. We're going to be talking about the second advent of Christ, and our text will be found in 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be focused on verses 8 through 13. However, we'll be in chapter 3 for uh, our time together. Now, over the past several weeks, what we've done is we've considered the preeminence of Jesus. We've looked together at how Jesus is the center of all things and how he is the one that holds all things together. Initially, what we did is we looked at his first advent or the first coming of Christ to this earth. Then we looked to Jesus' perfect life, having learned that his perfect obedience secures obedience for those who place their faith and trust in him. Then on Palm Sunday, we considered the eternal significance of his death. And on Easter, we rejoiced in Christ's resurrection because as believers, we know that death no longer has a grip on us. And just last week, we learned about Jesus' session or his being seated at the right hand of the Father and how this gives us a confidence that our God is for us. Our God is for us. All of these wonderful facets of who Jesus is and what he has done help us to understand that he is indeed preeminent over all things. He's preeminent over life. He's preeminent over death. These are bedrock truths we stand upon with all Orthodox Christianity throughout the ages. But there's still one event that is yet to occur. That's the second coming, or his second advent. Today, we will look to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll, we will be reminded that Jesus is coming back, and that we don't need to be worried about when he returns. If you're a Christian, you don't need to be frightened. We don't need to fret over the details, over the minutia of what time he'll come back or what day it'll be. But we can be confident in knowing that when Christ comes back, all the wrongs in this world will be made right. We will also see from our text that while we wait for his return, there's glorious work that we get to participate in with our Lord in doing. So now let's look to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll start at verse 8. I'm going to read to verse 13. This is God's holy word that's been graciously given to us this morning. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. 
Father, in your divine power, you've given us everything that we need to live holy and godly lives. We thank you for this epistle that instructs us on how to live holy and godly lives until your return. I pray this, this morning as we go through this text that you would challenge, convict, and comfort. Lord, I pray for those who are not in Christ this morning that they would be found in you, that they would repent and turn from their sin because of the coming day. Lord, we ask for your help. We need your help. So please open the eyes of our hearts, open our minds to hear wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I have three points for us today. The first point being the patience of the Lord. The second point is the day of the Lord. And the third is the work of the Lord. First point, the patience of the Lord. Understanding the context of 2 Peter is crucial to our exposition of this passage. We have to know what is going on. What Peter is doing is he's responding to false teaching that was being spread in the early church. Peter describes certain people, which he names as scoffers, that were telling Christians that the Lord is not returning. This is found in verse 4 when we read, They will say, they being the scoffers, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In response to this heresy, Peter reminds the Christian that the Lord is returning. And we can be encouraged by this, but the timetable of his return is unknown to us. He hints at why this timetable is unknown by quoting Psalm 90, verse 4, which tells the reader that God does not operate under the same constraints of time as we expect him to. Peter quotes Psalm 90, verse 4, in verse 8 of 2 Peter 3, when he writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You see, the scoffers, These people who were trying to lead people astray didn't believe Jesus would return because it didn't happen right away. It didn't happen on their timetable or when they expected it to. What is important for us to understand is that what this verse does not mean is that 1,000 days or 1,000 years equals one day to the Lord. As if Peter were providing us with this formula by which to calculate the Lord's timing. His use of figurative speech here signals that God's perspective on time differs from our own. This is exactly what Peter wants his audience to understand. Peter wants the believer to know that God doesn't operate within time the same way that we do. The overarching purpose here, the point of this verse, is to help us realize that we cannot assume to know exactly when the Lord will return. We can't. Can't claim to know that. The scoffers assumed they knew he wouldn't return because it was taking too long. But our God doesn't operate, he doesn't act in time the way that we expect him to. That's because time is different for us. 
time affects us. Like gravity, time imposes its law upon us to keep us confined within its limits. But time doesn't affect the Lord. All of us, we change with time. Our emotions change. The songs we like change. The TV shows we binge on change. All of those things change about us. And each of us are growing older by the minute. Each of us are getting weaker by the minute. And for some of us, myself included, we're turning grayer by the minute. But God remains the same. From eternity past, God has been the same. He alone is immutable, meaning God never changes, even with the passing of time. All of the elements, all of what we see around us in the physical world, in the material world, everything that we can touch and see with our eyes will break down and decay. The scoffers, they either forgot this truth about God or they never believed it in the first place. And what this did is it led them to be more concerned with living for the here and now than waiting for the return of the Lord. If we were to represent the beliefs on, when the day, uh, on the day of the Lord, if we were to represent them on a spectrum, the scoffers would be on one extreme end of the spectrum. And on the other far end would be those who claim to know exactly when the Lord will come back. Hitting the fast-forward button to the 20th and 21st century, if we did a survey of the landscape of the church, we would find that there have been many self-professed prophets who claim to know the exact date and time of the Lord's return. I am going to opt to be charitable here and not name any names and simply say that we cannot presume to know the date or the time of the Lord's return. We cannot know when he's coming back. People have made it their obsession since the ascension to speculate on when the Lord will come back. But what happens when all of these expectations go unmet? What happens when people start to look to the signs of the times or they turn on their favorite end times preacher who claims to know, they know ex the exact date and time of the Lord's return only to find out that they were wrong all along? Do these people become jaded and then find themselves becoming like the scoffers, not even believing the Lord will come back? The false teachers of Peter's day, they gave up hope altogether of the second coming. And what's fascinating, what is interesting about Peter's chosen tactic is he doesn't engage the false teachers directly. He doesn't use fancy rhetoric to try to convince them otherwise. He doesn't attack their character. He doesn't slander the false teachers. What Peter does is he chooses to strengthen the saints with Scripture. He quotes from the Old Testament in verse 8, and then he references a little bit earlier on in verse 2, the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior. And he does this 
to remind and encourage the believers that they can be certain the Lord will return because Jesus said he would return. There may have been Christians in Peter's audience who were falling prey to this false teaching, who were listening to it, who were giving ear to the false teachers, to the scoffers, and they might have begun to doubt that the Lord would return. What Peter does is he models for us how Scripture is our best weapon against unbelief and doubt. Friend, are you doubting a particular promise of God this morning? Are you doubting whether Christ is preeminent? If Christ holds all things together, especially in a world that is bursting at the seams with unbelief? Are you doubting the Lord's goodness? Are you doubting his faithfulness? Are you doubting his love for you? We can look to Scripture to address these doubts. We can see in Scripture that our God is good, that he is faithful, and that he loves us. Peter used the Scriptures to remind the church that Jesus didn't lie about his return. Then he goes one step further and he expands on this by giving us the reason why the Lord has yet to return. It's because he's patient. The Lord is patient. Verse 9 reads, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Sarcastically, the scoffers thought, why hasn't the Lord returned yet? He's taking too long. I think some of us might be wondering the same. The reason is, it's because he's patient. The Lord's demonstration of patience in prolonging his return is the ultimate display of grace and mercy. Why? Well, we read in verse 9 that the Lord's patience is linked. It's directly linked to his desire that none should perish, but that all would reach repentance. Friends, this is good news. This is extremely good news because I'm certain there are some of us who have kids, family members, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, parents who are not saved. I'm certain there are some of us who have co-workers, friends, acquaintances who are not saved. The Lord is patiently extending the timetable of his return so that we can witness to them. Does this mean everyone will be saved when he does return? No. What it does mean is that when the Lord returns, all who will be saved will be saved. If you're familiar with Reformed theology, then you might have come across some of its criticism. Some people have claimed that folks in the Reformed camp are lazy in their evangelism, or we neglect evangelism altogether. 
Because we believe that God alone works in salvation to rescue the sinner from their sin and that he does so by grace alone, then why should we even share the gospel? If he's already determined who will receive it by faith, then why preach the good news at all? Or so the criticism goes. Now, this passage should give us a motivation to continue to pursue sinners with the gospel in our personal witness and in our evangelism. It provides us with a certainty that God will save the exact number of those he will save. And it's because he's patient. He's prolonging his return so that sinners would repent and turn to him. What this means is we can share the gospel with our friends, with our family, with our co-workers, with strangers in the grocery store because we're told that God is patient. He's extending his son's return so that sinners will turn to him. This doesn't give us a reason to be lazy in our evangelism, but it does give us a desire, or it should give us a desire to witness and testify of Jesus even more. God is gracious, or God is kind to extend his second coming, but we haven't got to the why behind that. His second coming will be a glorious day for his saints, but it will be a terrifying day for those who are not in Christ. Which leads to our second point, the day of the Lord. Peter has made it clear that we cannot presume to know when the Lord is returning. We can be sure that he is returning. And something we read in this, in verse 10, is that it will come upon us like a thief in the night. Like a thief who robs a house. Again, what Peter does is he uses figurative language here specifically in verse 10, to help his audience see the point he's trying to make. A thief, or at least a good thief, they don't inform the owners of a house that he or she is going to break in. No smart criminal will log into the next door app and notify all of their neighbors, hey, I'm looking for this, I'm just going to break into your house and get it. Thieves do their best work when they arrive unannounced. And so it will be with the day of the Lord. It will be unannounced. There will be no notification, kind of like when you get an amber alert or the silver alert, you know, that obnoxious sound that comes from your phone. We won't get that. There will be no notifications posted through Facebook or Instagram. The day of the Lord will not be trending on Twitter. It will come upon us swiftly, and it will be a terrifying day that holds no rival. The nuclear disaster of Chernobyl, combined with the destruction brought by Mount Vesuvius on Pompeii, will pale in comparison to the day of the Lord. Peter, in verses 10, uh, Peter in verses 10 through 12, paints this terrifying picture of the heavens and the earth being set ablaze with fire and that they will dissolve. But why would the Lord return this way? 
If you're new to Christianity or unfamiliar with the day of the Lord, let's look at a couple passages of Scripture to define this day. Jesus himself tells us the purpose of the day of the Lord in Matthew 16, verse 27. There he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. In Luke chapter 21, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus tells us in Scripture that on the day of the Lord, He will come in power and glory, and that He will bring judgment and redemption. Now, that's odd. Judgment and redemption sound like they're opposed to one another, but what He means is that He will bring judgment to those who are not found in Him, those who are unrepentant non-believers. And for those who are in Christ, we will receive the fullness of our redemption. For non-believers, this day will bring terror that cannot be comprehended. On the day of the Lord, a divine trial will take place in which every person will be judged according to their sins and they will receive an eternal sentence. There will be no public defender offered by the court to represent you before the divine judge. There will be no defense attorney, not even the likes of a Johnny Cochran, that could successfully defend you on this coming day. No precedent could be appealed to for exoneration. The only standard that will be appealed to is the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. And friends, if you haven't embraced Jesus as the Word of God, there will be no hope for you. Rich mentioned last week that Jesus, on this future day, will make his enemies his footstool. And this will be the day in which we will see this fully executed, when Jesus makes his enemies his footstool. If you're not in Christ on this day, you will be considered an enemy. And you will be crushed for your rebellion. Suffice it to say that on that day, if you're not in Christ, the opportunity to place saving faith in him will have passed you by. But here's the good news. The Lord hasn't returned yet. That day is not yet drawn upon us, so that means there's still time today to turn to him and repent of your sin. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that today is the day of salvation. That means today can be that day for you. Now, you might be a Christian hearing this and thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. But it does to those that we love who don't know him. We should sense an urgency to share the gospel with them because this will be a terrifying day. Paul says, again, in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 6, verse 2, that today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Jesus, today could be that day for you. If you don't know him, place your faith in him because he's kindly extending his return to give you an opportunity to follow him. Now for the believer, this day will bring the fullness of our redemption. All of us who are in Christ, we will also take our place in this divine courtroom. But the good news for us is we have the greatest defender history has ever known in Jesus because we've been justified. Because Jesus has already atoned for our sin, so we need not fear this coming day. If you're a Christian, you and I will be excused of any punishment on that day because the Lord has already been punished for us. That's good news. Our sins have been paid in full by our defender. And we will be acquitted, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has already done for us. If you're a Christian, the day of the Lord is a day we can look forward to and anticipate with joy because full justice will be executed. Hollywood and a host of streaming platforms, Hulu, Netflix, you name it, they've all profited over giving us small glimpses of justice. Small glimpses. There's something innate in all of us that enjoys watching a show or a movie or listening to a podcast in which good triumphs over evil. Like when the bad guy gets caught and gets brought before the judge and gets sentenced for their crime. On the day of the Lord, all the crimes humanity has committed against our holy God will be fully prosecuted. Judgment will be executed to the fullest extent of divine law, and the only ones who will be set free from this impending judgment are those who are found in Christ. If you're a Christian, this should sound better than any true crime documentary. Because full justice will be executed. Friends, this day is coming. Peter warns his audience with fiery language to remind them that this day is coming. It's an inescapable reality that the Lord will return, and when he does, he'll be accompanied by fire. No amount of preparedness will ready the world for this coming day. Now, I'm not trying to knock the efforts of climatologists, geologists, or seismologists, or any of the other scientific dis disciplines that are dedicated towards studying the patterns of the earth to predict catastrophic events. It's not what I'm trying to do here. But no one can predict the day of the Lord. And on that day, it will be much more catastrophic than any earthquake or hurricane this earth could throw at us. For those who dedicate themselves towards saving the environment, again, do not mean to knock your efforts. We should all be good stewards of the resources we utilize while we're here on this earth. However, before we can destroy the earth with pollution or with whatever else, uh, carbon emissions, 
whatever other means we can be destructive, the Lord will return. And this earth, along with the heavens, will be burned up and dissolved. And it'll be burned up and dissolved, not at our own doing, but by His doing. I realize that up until this point, it might sound like a lot of doom and gloom. Peter saves the best for last in our passage. Verse 13 reads, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All of history is marching along toward this day. There are worldviews and philosophies that teach that history is cyclical or that it repeats itself. Friends, that's wrong. As Christians, we understand history to be entirely different. It's marching on in linear fashion toward this coming day. It's marching on toward the day in which all things are made new. You see, the Lamb wasn't slain just to make us Christians, or even to, to make us Christians, so that we can become angels who pluck a harp in the clouds, distant from this earth. The Lamb was slain so that on this coming day, all that's been tainted by sin, the earth and everything on it, would be restored. All of redemptive history will culminate in this wonderful promise. God will recreate a new heavens and a new earth for us to dwell with Him. There won't be any more tears. There will be no pain, no aching joints. There will be no reason for anxiety over inflation or the rising gas prices. <laughs> there will be no reason for anxiety over raised rent. There will be no reason for anxiety over waiting on the doctor's diagnosis. There will be no reason for stress over exams or finals or relationships that have broken and fallen apart. There will be no reason for stress over your marriage and wondering if your spouse is being faithful. There will be no reason for fear. Death will be non-existent on this day. Everything will be made right. And if you're a Christian, this is the day we should be longing after. This is the day we should be hoping for. The day in which all things are made new. And if you're a Christian... This is the day we should be living for. Which leads to our third point, the work of the Lord. There were those in the early church who didn't believe that this day was coming. I would propose that sometimes we too can live in neglect of the reality of his return. It's not as if we deny altogether that the Lord will return. But functionally, I believe we can be tempted to live our lives in such a way as to ignore the fact that the Lord is returning. Perhaps we do this by concentrating so much on our families, 
and making sure that our kids are behaving well. Or maybe we focus all of our attention on ascending the corporate ladder. Or it's possible that we spend so much time working hard at school to earn degrees. Now, in and of themselves, these are not bad things. None of these are bad things. These are gifts from the Lord. It's only when we neglect to live a life that's marked by holiness and godliness that these things start to become deadly distractions. After describing the coming day of the Lord, what Peter does is he encourages his audience to dedicate themselves to holy and godly living. To holy and godly living. Because the Lord is returning, and because it will be a day that comes upon us like a thief in the night, we should live holy and godly lives now. Because we can't predict when it will happen. Cannot put off living right before the Lord until tomorrow. We have to do so today. This doesn't mean that we gain some special standing with God if we live holy and godly lives. What this means is that we're called to live for our future destination. We're destined for the new heavens and new earth, so we should live like it today. And what do those who live holy and godly lives do? Well, Peter tells us in part in verse 12, we're called to wait and hasten the day of the Lord. Called to wait for the day of the Lord to do so patiently, expectant that it will come. And what this should produce in us is a desire to hasten his return. You might be wondering, like I was before studying this passage for today's sermon, how can we hasten the Lord's return? If God is sovereign over history, and if he alone knows when that day will be, what gives us any right to think we have some influence on when this coming day is? Let's look back at verse 9. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How do people repent? How do people hear the gospel and repent of their sin? Well, we recognize this as a work that God accomplishes when his word is preached and when people are convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit and are raised to new life in Jesus and seek to follow him. While God can work through any means to save people, he has chosen some primary means, some primary ways that he calls people to salvation. One way that God calls sinners to repentance is is through pastors faithfully preaching God's word. Now what this requires is a gathering of believers. So we can, can conclude that, when we, that one way we as Christians participate in the hastening of the Lord and in His coming is by continuing to gather to hear and respond to sermons as they're preached. We can also conclude that we participate 
in the hastening of the day of the Lord when we plant churches to reach new people in hard-to-reach places or in places where there may be a lack of faithful churches. Preaching and planting. Another way is through prayers. Another effective means God uses to reach sinners is through our prayers. As we pray for the lost, God does something. God moves his mighty hand in saving those who thought we thought might have been far from salvation, but God rescues them out of their sin. We can pray for and preach to those who have yet to repent because we're given confidence in this passage that we hasten the day of the Lord by doing so. We can also hasten his return by continuing to witness and in our personal evangelism. Our friends and family who don't know him need to hear about Jesus. We get to participate in redemptive history when we tell others of our Redeemer. I'm going to end with this quote by Charles Spurgeon. But I'd like to add one thing. I think a lot of us sometimes operate and we think that evangelism and preaching and witnessing is reserved for a select few people, whether it's the pastors or lay leaders, small group leaders. You might think, oh, evangelism's not for me. The Lord's called us all to witness of his power and of his goodness and of his love in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says, But I am not talking to ministers, but to you who sit in the pew. And therefore, to you, let me turn myself more directly. Brothers and sisters, you have different gifts. I hope you use them all. Perhaps some of you, though members of the church, think you have none. But every believer has his gift and his or her portion of work. Here's the takeaway for us. What can you do to win souls? What can you do to win souls? Christian, the day of the Lord has not come upon us yet. But we can be certain it's coming. When it does, it will be terrifying for those who are not found in Christ. Until that day, let us who proclaim Christ carry up the banner to preach, to plant, to pray, and to evangelize. We can be hopeful and wait for his return. But while we wait, we're called to a glorious task, and that's evangelizing the lost. Let's pray. Father, you make it clear in your word that you've called all of us to minister, to preach the gospel. You made it clear in Matthew 28 
when Jesus tells the disciples to go. Make disciples. To baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've made it clear throughout the New Testament that one of the ways you do that is through the preaching of your word. You made it clear in Acts that you accomplish your means of saving the lost through planting churches. Father, you've made it clear that you save through personal witness and evangelism. I pray that your people would feel the urge to testify to the goodness, to the power, and to the love of their Savior. Pray would we would be a people who pray for our neighbors who don't know you. Help us, fashion us to be a people that are tools in your hands, sharing the gospel with the lost. Throughout this series, we've heard of your preeminence, of Jesus' preeminence over all things. We know that you, Jesus, are Lord of all. So help us have confidence in our evangelism, sharing the gospel, because we know that as we share, you work by agency of your Spirit to save the lost. You're continuing to add to the number of those being saved, both here and abroad. Lord, we thank you for being participants in this mission. I pray, give us a zeal to continue to move forward. In Jesus' name, amen.